Well, it's hard to believe, but this is it. We're at the end of the summer. Now, it's the long weekend, and if you're watching online, we welcome you this morning, and you're watching online possibly during the long weekend. And if you've ever wondered where you stand with God, the fact that you're listening in on the long weekend means that you're good. It's the others that we worry about. I'm just kidding. I'm joking. Please don't tell them. But normally, we're either in the beginning or the end or the middle of a series. That's how we like to preach messages here. It allows me when I'm planning messages, it allows me to stay focused. It allows me to make sure that I'm hitting on the things that, uh, that I want to hit on. It keeps me from throwing a dart at a dartboard in my office and just picking some random topic or message or verse to just preach on. And so we like to, we like to preach in series. Well, we just finished a nine part series called Here I Am to Worship. And I hope that that was a blessing to you. I hope that you got something out of that series that if you missed any of it, if you missed all of it, you can go to our YouTube channel or our Facebook page and you can watch all or some of nine of the parts. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at a series, a five-part series called Lost in Translation, where we're going to look at the basis for some of the things that as Christians, those that follow Jesus, we say some things that if you just said out in the street, uh, they would have no idea what we're talking about. For example, week number one, we're going to look at the phrase, God spoke to me. Now, if you're not even a churchgoer, I'm sure you've heard somebody somewhere say those words that God spoke to them, and that, that alone just raises so many questions. Well, was it an audible voice? I mean, is there somewhere where I can stand, where I can get better reception to God? Does, does God only speak to certain people, and how do I get to be part of that select few? And so for five weeks, we're going to break down what we call Christianese, talk that we speak that only Christians really understand. Next week, I'm going to be preaching about hope in the future here at APA and what that looks like in very uncertain times. After the message, I'm going to open up the floor to field any questions that you may have. As a leadership team, we are very committed to being as open and transparent as we possibly can. And putting trust in leadership is feeling like you know what's going on. That doesn't always mean that you will agree with decisions that are made, but at least you'll know why they're taking place or why we've chosen to go in that direction. This year, we did this last year, but this year feels a little different because where our world is right now, there are so many unknowns. As a church staff and board, uh, we've tried to plan around COVID-19, but it just always feels like the finish line is moving. And so we adjust and we try some things. Sometimes we don't do it right. We make mistakes. When we keep learning, we keep adjusting. So I can already foresee that as some of the questions come in, that the answers this time around will be, I, I don't know. Because that's the truth. I mean, there are some things that we don't know when certain programs are going to come back or we don't know when certain activities we can resume and we just don't know that far out when these things happen. And every time we think we know, something changes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a portion of that morning to answer your questions as much as I can. And if you're watching online, the Q&A portion will not be broadcast. However, if you do have questions, even if you're watching for the first time, you can always send me an email at roy at myapa.ca. That's roy at myapa, which is Arthur Pentecostal Assembly, 
Roy at myapa.ca, and I'll get back to you with your question. Well, today we're looking at what it means to gain ground. One of my favorite board games to play is the game Risk. In Risk, you probably know the game because it's been around since 1957. And in order to play Risk, it's this basic premise that you are given a whole bunch of little army figures at the beginning. And you get this, the board is this big map of the world. And so you start by placing your little army guy on one of the countries in the world. And uh, your opponents take turns until you've filled every country alternating. And then with the rest of the guys you have, you start filling in or fortifying different spots strategically where you think you can make the most, the most moves. And you go until every, every country is assigned and all your guys are out there. And then you get dice and you decide whether, where you're going to attack and try to take over somebody's country. And if you have the higher numbers on the dice, higher than their numbers, then you take, men, take their little men out. And eventually when you've knocked out all their men, you move some of your guys and you've now occupied their country. The end goal is to eventually take over the entire world. Now, this is not the type of game that if you've got like half an hour to sit down to play or limited time, this is not your game. Because this game can literally take hours to play. When I worked at a, co a company one time, it was a copy editing company, and a few of us guys decided that on our, our lunch hour, we were going to take the second half of our lunch hour after we ate, and we were going to play Risk. And we'd play each lunch hour, so we are going to leave the, the game board set up. Nobody was allowed to touch it. It took us a month just to finish one game. But in order to accomplish your goal of world domination, you needed to gain ground. The term gaining ground is a military metaphor, an acquisition of territory to move closer to your end goal. So as a church, we have this goal to gain ground for Christ in the Arthur area. I mean, it's not like we're looking to take over territory as in we're going to take over the RBC or this, this side of the block, or it's not like we're looking to just go out and convert a whole bunch of people. But each of us that have put our trust in Jesus, we understand the gift of salvation. The freedom and life change that comes when you decide to live your life differently than the current of culture. When you decide to live your life for Jesus. And that the love always conquers hate. That a life devoted to Jesus makes life better and that it makes you actually better at life. And if you've had an experience that where with God that, that's given you this sense of hope, especially in a time where it feels a little bit hopeless, if you've had an experience that has taken your life in a totally different direction for the better, why would you not want to help others experience that as well? In Matthew 28, 18, it's 18 to 20, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I am surely, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We, we call this in Christian circles, we call this the Great Commission. Jesus tells those that are devoted to following him, because you follow me, because you trust me, I have given you the hope of heaven, and I've given you a model of how to live life to the fullest while loving those around you. You need to go, and you need to spread that love. You need to spread that hope. You need to spread that message. 
And so wherever you're planted, gain ground. Gain ground in your community. Spread hope, spread love, spread the gospel message, the good news. The truth is, by most accounts, the pandemic that we are facing right now, this has been a tough, tough season for a lot of churches. Not all, but some. The estimates are that many churches will face a 30% decrease in attendance when everything comes back to normal. Attendance will be down. Giving, as a result, will be down. And some churches, unfortunately, are going to have a tough time rebounding from this. In the same, those same military terms, some churches in this season are going to need to retreat, regroup, and then advance again after a period of time of recovery. Some, unfortunately, will retreat and have no choice but to throw up a white flag. And make no mistake, God's not thrown off balance by all of this. He has an incredible plan for the next season. In our context right here, yeah, we've had to slow down. Maybe some of our plans were a little bit disrupted. But we have incredibly faithful people in our church and I feel like we don't fit the, more, the normal projection. Our finances are in great shape. We don't, like, we don't get this sense like we're going to lose a bunch of people. And while some will need to regroup, we actually feel like we're ready to advance again. And what do I attribute this to? Well, we have faithful people, like I said, who give. But we also have faithful people that pray or constantly have not stopped praying at all during all of this. And instead of laying people off like some churches have had to do, we, as a church, we've been purchasing meals for people or we're blessing our community wherever we can. We've actually been able to look outward than, rather than kind of lick our own wounds. APA is truly a wonderful church. About a year ago, as many of you know, I had surgery on my heart. And for some context, for those that are hearing this for the first time, back when I was a teen, I would have some heart flutters that were so inconsistent that doctors could never really catch them with an EKG or a, a heart monitor. And they would, they would come for like 10 or 15 seconds and they would disappear. And it was almost felt like an anxiousness. You know that moment where you feel like you forgot your cell phone at the restaurant and, you're, and then they would kind of go away. Well, about five years ago, it became more consistent. More, they came more often, and it, the, flat, the flutters, as, or so to speak, would, would last longer. One night, I was playing basketball, and it was apparent that my heart was beating really abnormally or inconsistent, and, and it, it was actually out of rhythm. And, and instead of being at like 10, 15 seconds, it was hours. And initially, doctors put me on medication to kind of slow my heart rate down and decrease the chance that my heart would go out of rhythm again. But eventually, the medication became less effective and episodes became more frequent. And, and sometimes, my heart would go out of rhythm in the most op- inopportune times. One time, I was leading a group of 45 students to overflow our, our youth conference. And of course, my heart goes out of rhythm right in the middle of the weekend. And while my students are at, uh, at a service, I'm sitting in a hospital bed hooked up to monitors. Another time I was on a missions trip and I was hiking a volcano in Guatemala and, and, and all of a sudden my heart goes out of rhythm at the, at the top. And, and, and when this happens, I can barely walk. And as it so happens, the volcano starts showing signs of activity and everyone starts to be kind of ushered down because it's maybe who knows what will happen. 
And instead of being able to rush with everybody, I'm moving really, really slowly. So eventually my doctor says, let's do surgery. We'll send a wire up a vein inside your thigh all the way up to your heart and we will fix the problematic area and you'll be fine. When the surgery was complete, they, they, they assured me that with 95% assurance that I was fixed. No more medication, no more worrying about where I am and where the closest hospital is. Or, or You're all good. But they did warn me, after the surgery, for the first eight weeks or so, you may start to feel some of those familiar flutters again as your heart recovers. And, and you actually might feel like your surgery didn't work. Be patient. And sure enough, it happened. I, I found myself in the middle. In the place where I was told things would be fine, but what I was experiencing, I was experiencing some of those flutters, it didn't match what I was told. I didn't actually feel fixed. I had to put my faith in what I was told rather than what I was experiencing. I think we all know that feeling. When we have this promise of what is to come, but in our current reality, in our current reality, we, we question if it'll ever come to pass. It's like maybe you're single and people have told you, be patient, that the right guy or the right girl will come along into your life and God will bring, a, bring someone to you. And it, but it feels like you're going to be single forever. Or maybe you're dealing with a sickness and doctors, while they'll tell you you will get better, especially if you, you, know, if you take this medication, it feels like right now you're always going to be sick. Or maybe you have children and your kids are going through this, this just awkward phase where they're giving you all kinds of problems, but God's giving you this promise that if you stay consistent, that this phase will pass, but it doesn't feel like it right now. Or kids, you've been told that if you work hard in school, doors will open to your future, but right now you're in grade four or grade seven or grade 10, and it seems like there's so much school left and you're living with this promise, but the reality is it's just a lot of hard work. And it feels like it's going to be this way forever. Today, I want to wrestle with this question. What do you do when the promises of God don't match what you're seeing? What do you do when the healing or, or a healthy marriage or a bright future or, or kids that serve God, what do you do when the reality of what you're seeing doesn't seem to match the things that God has promised? Well, to answer that, we're going to look at a story from the Old Testament. There is so much gold in some of these stories from the Old Testament. And if you're willing to dig, there are some inc incredible life principles that you should base your life around. I had a college, Bible college intern once, and he was preaching to my students one youth night. And so I'm sitting in the crowd with the students, and I'm marking him on his message. And he says this, tonight we're going to look at a story from the Old Testament. And if you don't read the Old Testament... That's understandable because the Old Testament is boring and hard to read. And then he says this, right, Pastor Roy? Well, some of my students to this day still laugh at my response because my response was, no. No, that's, that's not right at all. Because while sometimes you need to dig a little bit to understand the context of what's happening in that world at that time to get the full weight of the story, there are incredible lessons that we can glean out of the Old Testament. So we talked, we talked about part of this story a couple weeks ago, but the Exodus, Exodus means departure. In the Exodus, two million Hebrews that were enslaved to the Egyptians are freed when God sends Moses to lead them out. 
And through a series of incredible miracles and events, the Hebrew people find themselves free for the first time in their lives and holding on to a promise that God made them that he would lead them to the promised land where they would set up their nation. A place that would, they were settled that was incredibly rich in resources. It was said to have met their every need. And, but in this moment, they're in the desert and they're wandering. And they don't see the promise. All they see is sand. So we have two million Hebrews in the desert. And of those two million, two of those guys were named Joshua and Caleb. Now we heard a couple weeks ago that despite the fact that God had freed his people, despite the fact that he parted the Red Sea and delivered them from the pursuing Egyptian army, despite the fact that he provided shade during the daytime, fire by night, food and water when it seemed like there was none around, despite the fact that God had provided for every need, they had every reason to believe that God would deliver on this promise of the promised land. And yet they complained. However, we have reason to believe that Joshua and Caleb held a different viewpoint. Because at one point when the the Hebrew people come across the promised land, Moses decides that he will send 12 spies to check out the land, see if it was all it was cracked up to be, and see who's currently inhabiting the land, which it was. So two of the 12, two that that we've talked about, Joshua and Caleb, they go with 10 others. I might point out 10 others who have experienced the same miracles that Joshua and Caleb have. So knowing all that, the 12 are sent to spy and report back. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 25, it says this, At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. What I love here is that they, they, they lay out these, these places, these specific places. Like this is not just a fairy tale. This is real places, real people. And there they reported to them and the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. Verse 27, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us to. And it does flow with milk and honey. Like it is, it is resourceful. It's just as good as you said it was. Here is the fruit. But but the people who live there are powerful. And their cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, which was these giant people. See, as they're giving their report, there's fear. They're they're presenting fear. The people, they looked huge. Their defenses, they were strong. They, they, They had actually talked themselves out of advancing or gaining ground there before they even reached back home to give Moses the report. Verse 30 says, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we certainly can do it. So Caleb stands up, and he and Joshua, obviously they did not feel the same way as the other ten. Maybe they even had an argument coming back home to present their report. And Caleb, whose name literally means follower of God, where like wherever you lead God, I will follow. He's drawing on what he's seen in the past. And he's thinking, we can do this because God has already promised it. But the other 10, well, they come at it with a very negative standpoint. They're really playing up how big the people are, how strong their armies look, how fortified the city is. But 
Caleb doesn't go with the majority. He's like, let's go get this land. See, God promised it to us. What more do you need? We can do this, guys. It's ours to gain. Now, going back to playing risk, if, if you have an army in one country and your army has like four little guys on it and you're right up against another country of your opponent that has a hundred guys, four against a hundred, you're going to be decimated pretty quickly. It's not a good idea. So maybe look to the other side where there's one lonely guy. Maybe take that country. That'll be a lot easier. But what if God reassures you that you're going to roll double or triple sixes every time? You're, you're, you're going to take this land. Here's the question you and I have to wrestle with. What do you, do, you and I do with the promises of God when it seems like there's obstacles in the way of those promises coming to life? See, Caleb stands up and he says, hey, listen, I know this seems daunting. I know what your eyes saw. And my eyes saw the same thing, but my eyes also saw freedom for the first time in 400 years. My eyes saw God part the Red Sea. That didn't seem possible. My eyes saw water come from a stone. It doesn't make sense. And I'm clinging to the promises rather than what my eyes see because my God is faithful to his promises. Verse 31 says, But the men who had gone up with him said this, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among, they spread among the Israelites this, this bad report about the land they explored. And they said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. So it's easy to side with the majority. Because it was 10 to 2 when it came to the report. Negativity is a tool the enemy will use to destroy the dreams that God puts in your heart. Negativity is like a disease that spreads and eventually just crushes your dream and, and, and just pushes it out to die. Look again at what they said. They said, the land we explore is devoured those living in it. See, negative people often use exaggerations to sway people to their point to sway people to their side. I've been a pastor long enough to to have heard people say things like this, Pastor, I think we should do this. And it's not just me. Everyone feels this way. But then you do a little bit of digging, you actually find out it's not everyone. It's actually just three people. And the other two were influenced by the one. Just read comments on social media. Statuses of anyone who doesn't really like wearing a mask. They, they'll make exaggerated claims about the effects of masks because they don't like wearing them and they don't want to. Well, guess what? We all don't want to wear a mask. I was reading a, a message on a, a Facebook feed from a, from a certain town where they just recently mandated masks. And one guy said, well, I feel bad for all the local businesses because they're going to go under because no one will shop at any of them if we have to wear a mask. It's exaggeration. It's not true. Negative people will make massive generalizations to get their way. And the people said, the land we explored devours those living in it. Really? Because there are people living in it right now and they seem to be okay. Well, well the, all the people we saw, they were of great size. Verse 33 says, we seem like grasshoppers in, the, in our own eyes and we look the same to them. Total exaggeration. And how do you know what you seem like to them? Because if they saw you, that kind of makes you terrible spies. See, negative people will speak in exaggerated generalizations to get their way. 
Despite what they see, exaggerated or not, God has promised the land and it's there for the taking. Their land, the land that will meet every need is in, within reach, but there are obstacles. But anything, and we know this, anything worth going after is going to have obstacles. For the Hebrew people to receive what was promised to them, they were going to have to overcome what they saw. How do you do that? Well, you do that by standing on the promises of God. Again, what do you see when the promises, what do you do do when the promises don't match what you're actually seeing? Well, the 10 spies influenced the hearts of the other people because they were only looking through this, this lens of negativity and no faith. So God steps back from the situation and says, if you don't trust me, try this on your own. And so for the next 40 years, 40, 40 years, the people of Israel wandered in until in the desert until Moses and an entire generation, the previous generation, died off, never taking possession of the promised land. In fact, in the next chapter, in Numbers 14:38, it says, Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. But not, not Joshua and Caleb. They didn't die. God uses Joshua to now lead the nation. Why is this? Well, because there is a direct correlation between achieving the promise of God and standing on the promise of God. There's a correlation between fully trusting God and seeing his promise come to light. Here's my challenge for you today. How different would your life be if you trusted fully the promises of God? How different would your life be? How different would your marriage be, your schooling be, if you trusted God? Now, there's a difference between trusting God and then just sitting back. Because sometimes our lips say one thing, but our actions call us a liar. There's a very famous story of a man named Charles Blondin. It's famous in the mid-1800s for crossing Niagara Falls on a tightrope. People would come from all over to watch him and He had no safety harness. There was no nets. It was just pins and needles as you watched. And he vowed every time that he crossed over from Canada to the U.S. that he was going to make it more difficult the next time, to the crowd's delight. And so sometimes he would would walk across. Sometimes he would jog across. Once he brought one of those old-fashioned mid-1800s cameras took a picture of the crowd from the center spot of the tightrope just to show he could. One time he put a sack on his head to show that he could do it blindfolded. Another time he did it walking backwards. Another time he somersaulted and backflipped across. One time he carried a stove and utensils to the center, fired it up, made an omelet, and lowered the omelet, the cooked omelet, down to the made of the mist boat below. In one of his more daring trips, he carried his manager on his back across the tightrope. On July 15th, 1859, Joseph Blondin, or Charles Blondin, walked backwards across the tightrope to Canada, returned pushing a wheelbarrow blindfolded. And as the true showman that he was, he appealed to the crowd. He says, do you believe that I can carry a person across in this wheelbarrow? And the crowd was fired up and with a resounding, yes, we believe you can do it. To which Blondin posed the question, 
Who will get in the wheelbarrow? No one. No one did. See, it's one thing to say, we believe, God, that you can. It's another for our actions to back up our claim. Today, will you look with me in the mirror back at yourself? See, Scripture was never meant to be a window in which we viewed other people or judged other people through. Scripture was meant to be a mirror in which we look at ourselves, how we see ourselves. See, I love sports, and I could give you a sports analogy every week, and, uh, but I understand that not everyone does, so I don't. And plus, my wife says, don't, don't do a sports thing every week. But I used to coach a, a boys' basketball team a group of grade sevens and eights, and, and they were very, very good. And as much pride as I took in teaching them basketball, I think I took more pride in teaching them life skills. And so we had numerous talks about winning, which they did a lot, but winning with dignity and respecting your opponent. And one of the areas I was constantly talking to them about was trash talk. They loved to trash talk, talk smack. They loved to get in their opponent's heads by talking to them on the court, letting them know you can't guard me or your team stinks. And, and those were kind of some of the tame ones that I can say here. And I would tell them, if I catch you saying a word to your opponent that even seems like it's disrespectful, you're going to sit on the bench and you're going to stay there the rest of the game. And it was hard. I know it was hard because this is in their neighborhood. This was the language they spoke on the outdoor courts. But It was really hard when the other team would engage first in the trash talk. And it took some time, but they always found a loophole. So their favorite thing to do do is when they were winning the game and an opponent would would talk trash to them. Instead of talking back and risk being benched, they would just stop and point at the scoreboard. I didn't love that either, but there's value in pointing out Essentially, what they were saying was was this. It doesn't matter how big a game you talk. All that matters is what the score says. So as I close with these three areas, I want you to take inventory in your own life. It doesn't matter how much you talk. All that matters is what the score is. Three areas we're going to look at gaining ground in. Number one, gaining ground in relationships. See, one of the problems our culture has is that we don't like to talk about this, but a lot of us are lonely. We're connected today more than any other time through social media, but many of us can count our Facebook friends by the hundreds, but we are more lonely than ever. We don't have even two or three good friends we can turn to in our darkest times. We need people around us. And this isn't in the text, but I think one of the reasons why when the spies returned, Caleb stood with so much confidence is because he had Joshua by by his side. He wasn't by himself. We were never meant to do life alone. That's the reason why I believe that church is important. You belong to a family that will take care of you, that you can take care of as well, and look after each other. What have you done during this time, during COVID, when sometimes we weren't able to meet? Maybe you still aren't able to meet. Have you been proactive and checked in on other people? Because it's easy to get caught up in our own circumstances, but is there someone out there that needs you? Someone that, 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 that needs to hear your voice or needs to hear a voice. And some of you are great at this. I've heard multiple stories of people that are calling around or making sure that the gro- groceries are taken care of and making sure that no one feels forgotten. On the flip side, 
If you are lonely, have you reached out? Have you reached out to others? Because maybe that means letting somebody in, taking a risk. As a church, we are meant to have deeper relationships than just casual acquaintances. If you don't take a risk and allow people into your life, you will feel lonely, and we were never meant to live that way. Are you gaining ground in your relationships? Number two, are you gaining ground in reaching the lost? All of us know this is our responsibility if you call Jesus your Savior. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about this next week, but if you've been to church for any length of time, you've heard this term, you need need to go, you need to reach the lost, you need to go, you need to reach the lost, and you've heard it so much, it actually starts to become white noise. If you were to take an honest inventory, do the people around you that you rub shoulders with, do they know that you've put your faith in Jesus? Do they know that there's anything different about you at all? Do they, people that, that feel like they're far away from God, do they know that you've devoted your life to Jesus and, or are you a Christian spy blending in with your environment so much that they don't even know there's, there's nothing different about you at all? They don't even know that you go to church. See, we know it's our responsibility, but because of fear or protecting our reputation, we ignore the call that Jesus gave us to go and spread hope. We'll go and spread the good news. There's a verse in Isaiah where Isaiah makes this declaration so awesome. Chapter 6, verse 8, it says this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here's what Isaiah says. Here I am. Send me. What if we woke up every morning with this verse on our lips? God, I want to be your hands and feet. I want to speak words of life. I want to be an encouragement. I want to spread hope and joy wherever I go. Let me point people to you, God, the hope of the world. Here I am. Send me. If you pray this prayer every day for seven days, you'll be amazed at the opportunities that come your way to share your faith and invite people to church. Here I am. Send me. Here's another way, and this is not the only way you should do, but do you know that when we... When we share a message on our Facebook page, generally uh, it shows us our, the little statistics of how many people that message reaches. And uh, generally it's about 50 people. Now it was much more when people weren't gathering here in the building, but, but currently it's about 50 people every week. Do you know that if someone shares, clicks that little share button down below, shares the message to their page, that the reach number jumps to about 100, 120 people that actually the message reaches? I was looking back at one of them, because it seems to be exponential. I was looking back at one of the messages that we had that said four people shared it. Four people. Because four people shared it, it reached 1,300 people, that message. By sharing the message, more people stumble on a message of hope. And then we let the Holy Spirit do the rest. I encourage you, if you have Facebook, to share the message if you can. But that shouldn't be all you do. You can't just click share on it and like, okay, I'm done, God. That's my part. Look for people around you that you can be an answer to prayer and, and, and look for an opportunity that you've actually, you've actually sowed into the relationship that you have, you have earned the right to be able to share your faith. Third and last one is this. Gain ground in your community. 
This is something that I'm really going to talk about next week. But I want you to seek God in, in, in prayer of how you can play a role in reaching your community. Now, if you're watching online and you're outside the Arthur area or Arthur community, ask, how can I reach the people in my community and spread hope? As, as Christians, we got really angry when the Ontario government early on in COVID put out a list of the essential services that could stay open and the church wasn't on the list. But maybe, maybe instead of it being a slap in the face, which we felt like it was, maybe we should see it for what it is, a bit of a wake-up call. Maybe we need to look in the mirror and decide that next time anything else ever happens like this, and we hope it doesn't, but if it ever happens again, the church needs to be so essential that there would be community uproar, not by us, but others. Community uproar if we were forced to close. And that doesn't mean we create better church services so people can come to us. But we pray that God would put something on your heart in a way where you can serve your community, that we're so ingrained in our community that we others see us as essential. How do we as Christians become essential? We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. How do we gain ground in our relationships? How do we gain ground in reaching the lost? How do we gain ground in our communities that we're planted in? We do that by standing on the promises of God and then taking action like we actually believe those promises. Faith is looking past what I see now and trusting that if I move forward, God will fulfill those promises. See, this church right here, this church was planted as a step of faith for something they couldn't see right now but believed that there would be future promise. It's our job to stand firm in that promise, take action, and continue to keep gaining ground. Let's pray. God, as we, uh, as we look around us, Lord, I pray that uh, we, would, we would take a stand, that we would look at what you've done in our lives up to this point, God, that we, you, we would look at the promises that you've made and we would put our full trust in those promises. I, I pray that we would be people that aren't necessarily swayed just by what we see, but what you've promised to do. And so, God, I pray that we would look at how can we as a church, how, how can we just reach out, branch out, and, and create uh, meaningful relationships with each other, support each other. That's what we were meant to do, God. The early church supported each other. They, they built each other up. They shared everything. They lived together. And God, that's what we we're meant to do. We we're meant to live in community. God, how can we in our communities, how can we gain ground in our communities? How can we seek after the lost? How can we seek those that don't know you, God, that knows there's something out there that, uh, that they were meant for more, God? How can we be part of the gateway to point them to you? God, I pray that we wouldn't just look at people as, as numbers, but we'd see people as relationships, people that we care about, people that we would love to share the hope that we have inside of us. And so, God, how do we gain ground? How do we move forward? God, I thank you for an incredible church that has been so incredibly faithful that we're in a place where we are looking to advance, not retreat, not fall back, not regroup, but move forward. And I pray that with that responsibility and that incredible uh, opportunity that we have that we would use it to its fullest and give glory to you. 
God, I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.